Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Well, you may take a seat. Uh, Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 17. And uh, if you don't have a a Bible, we actually have some Bibles available for you um, uh, on a table in the back. I think Ashley's stepping back to get some. If you don't have a Bible, we really want you to have a a Bible to, to open it with us as we look at God's word. And so please feel free to just to grab a copy. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can actually take this copy home. If you, if you do and just forgot it today, you can just leave it on the table uh, on your way out. But Ashley has a couple copies. Just feel free to slip her hand up if you need one. But we'll be in Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 1 through 9. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, just so excited to look at this passage of scripture uh, with you. We believe that Luke, the same guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke, uh, gave us these words that we see in uh, the book of Acts, and we, uh, we receive them as words written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. So they come to us not as just a guy a long time ago writing a passage of Scripture, but as the very Word of Christ, uh, as the very authority of God Himself teaching His church. So let's hear together the Word of Christ, Acts 17. Uh, verse 1 through 9. Now when they had passed through, um, I'm sorry, um, yes, I'm sorry, yeah. now when they had passed through, I'm sorry, I, got, I lost my place. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Ampollinia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. And they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out into the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers out before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've been uh, with us over the last few weeks, over the last four weeks, we were in the book of Genesis. And this year, we're going to be studying the entire book of Genesis in 12 weeks. We're going to be moving fast through it. Uh, But we, we were taking a little break from Genesis. We'll come back after a couple of months. Um, But over the next three weeks, so starting today, and then for two more weeks, we're going to be in this book, in the book of Acts. Now, just so that's not such a jolt for you, say, okay, how do I get from Genesis to Acts? Let me kind of connect these two books uh, for you. So, of course, if you remember from the study of Genesis, uh, God begins the world in perfect harmony with himself. Everything that God created was right and whole and good. And there was perfect unity and harmony and rhythm between God and man. But of course, you remember from our study that tragedy struck, that man sinned. 
that man fell out of rhythm with God, that man fell out of God's order, and there was a break in the relationship between God and man. But literally, as the man and the woman were receiving the consequence that they deserve because of their sin against God, as that is happening, at the same time, God was promising them salvation. He was promising them hope, and he said, there will be an offspring, an offspring of the woman who will come, who will crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. He will undo, you can read into it, the work of the serpent. He'll restore the wholeness and the order and the right relationship between God and man. So the rest of the Bible, and we've started to trace this in our study of Genesis, the rest of the Bible, there's, there's a bit of this quest for this offspring, the quest for the head crusher, who is going to come and undo the work of the serpent. And of course, we believe that that offspring, the ultimate offspring, was Jesus. And so that's why, one of, the, one of the reasons we make such a big deal over the birth of Christ is because it's an announcement. This offspring has finally come. The one who is going to undo the work of the serpent is finally here. This, this seed of the woman has finally been born. And as we learn in Christ, he wasn't just the child of a woman. He was also the child of God. And the message of the gospel is that through Jesus, through this offspring, Jesus, who has come and lived in real time, in real history, through Jesus you can have a relationship with God. The same way that Adam and Eve in the garden who were made in perfect union with God, the same way that they had a relationship with God, you, through Jesus, can have a relationship with God Almighty. Jesus says, if you've heard from me, you've heard from the Father. Jesus says, I, I take what the Father has given to me and I give it to you. Jesus prays that the disciples would be one with him and that they would all be one with God. Do you see what he's doing? He's crushing the head of the serpent. He's undoing the work of the serpent. He's restoring union. He's restoring harmony. He's restoring relationship between God and man. He is the offspring who has come to undo the curse. And how does he do it? Well, on the cross, we as Christians believe that Jesus literally became the curse, that he literally took on our record of sin, our record of unrighteousness. Jesus, who had perfect union with God on the cross, became an outcast so that we who are outcasts because of our sin, we who are outside of the presence of God, outside of relationship with God, we who through Christ and through his death and resurrection could be brought back in so that we could have union. On the cross, his heel was struck, but in his resurrection, the head of the serpent was crushed. And now Jesus, who is alive, who is fully alive, brings us back him. Through faith in Christ, you can have communion with God, a relationship with almighty God. Now you might be like, okay, what does that mean? Through Christ, to know Christ. I mean, didn't Jesus live 2,000 years ago? What do you mean when you say, I can know Jesus. Well, we believe, Christians believe that you know Jesus by faith in his word, in his church, and in the work of his Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? Well, let me explain it this way. In 2013, um, I spent a summer, um, well, several weeks one summer at the Angus Library in, uh, in Oxford in England. And I was writing my dissertation on this is like the, the super nerdy side of me. I was writing my dissertation on 
uh, 18th century Baptist life. I know um, I'm strange. But anyway, um, I was reading all of these letters. I was reading all of these old letters, and it was kind of an amazing thing. I mean, you have all of these letters that people had penned in the 1700s, and you're holding the actual piece of paper. You know, the, the actual records of these letters are still there in, in this library. And, and I read a lot of different letters by a lot of different folks, but one of the guys that I read a lot of his letters was a guy named Andrew Fuller. And so really through Fuller's letters, through his sermons, I was knowing him. I was getting to know him. I, I, I had been impacted by him. And that was an amazing experience to me for me because I had been impacted by Fuller and his theology and his writings before I actually held the letters in my hands. But that experience, just realizing how God had used this man to help shape me, it was an amazing experience. But, but it was more than that. Because Fuller, you, you all have been affected by Fuller too. Now, you don't know it, but he was such a giant, and, and what he wrote and the way that he systemized theology has so affected what we know as the evangelical church today that you have been shaped by this man, by this writing. And so in my interaction with you, I am actually connected to, I can know, in a sense, Andrew Fuller. This is what we're talking about with Christ. We know him through his word. We know him through the impact that he's had uh, on the church that, that we have received. The relationship that I have with you is, is in so many ways the effect of Christ in your life through Christians, through the church, through generations. But we can actually know Jesus more intimately than I know Andrew Fuller. Because beyond his word, beyond his church, we have his very spirit. The spirit of Christ that God has sent to indwell people that know him through faith. And if this, thing, if this seems strange to you, that this is the message of the Bible, that you can have a spiritual life, a spiritual communion with God through the very third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And then through the power of the Spirit, through the Spirit's work in your life, you can know God, you can commune with God, you can know Him with your mind, you can know Him with your heart, you can know Him with your soul, and even your strength. Through Jesus, through His Word, through His church, through His Spirit, you can know and love the Father. And through Jesus, the work of the serpent is undone. And I just want to say this. If you believe that, if you believe that, if you believe that you can know God, then that is the most significant thing about you. If you believe that you can actually know God, that is the most significant thing that could ever happen to you. You know, at the end of the day, I am just a simple, insignificant man from Alabama, you know. I, I'm, I pastor this little church in Atlanta. I'm married to a great woman, a great wife, I have great children, but at the end of the day, I have not done very many significant things in the course of history. I'm just a pretty normal, insignificant guy from Alabama, but you know what? I know God. I know God. I know the one who spoke the universe into existence. I know the one who created everything. And here's the deal, if you know Jesus, it doesn't matter who you are, then you know God. Then the Father's will and His life and His power has been given to you. And there is nothing that could be greater than this. And if you know and believe this, if you believe that this offspring has come, that's undone the curse of the serpent, that's brought us back into relationship with God, if you believe that, 
then you have an impulse to tell people that. You have an impulse to let that be known. If you can really know God in Christ, then you have to talk about it. You have to speak about it. And that connects Genesis to Acts, right? That's what the book of Acts is about. Christ has come. Union with God has been restored. And now what we see is people going out and sharing with the world what Jesus has done. Of course, Jesus gave this great command. Is that Not only are we just compelled because we know God to share about Christ, we're compelled because Christ has commanded us to do so in the Great Commission, to go and make disciples, to go and tell the world about Jesus, to undo this curse, to show the world that they can know God through Jesus. And of course, this command, this Great Commission, is repeated at the beginning of the book of Acts. Right before Jesus ascends to, right before we read the account of the ascension, Jesus says this to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And after receiving this command in Acts chapter 2, what happens? The Holy Spirit does come upon them. And you know what the disciples do? They go out and they become the witnesses of Christ in Jerusalem. And what the story of Acts is about, what this whole book of Acts, you say, what is the book of Acts about? The book of Acts is the playing out of this verse. It's the story of how the gospel got from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The, the, the story of Acts begins in Jerusalem. It ends in Rome, which Rome, like Atlanta, was a global city touching every corner of the earth. And how we see the gospel advancing, what the story of Acts is about, is the gospel moving from city to city to city to city. And so over the next three weeks, this is what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about gospel advance from city to city to city to city. Now, many of you know that there was a man named Paul that was dramatically used by God in a major way to take the gospel from city to city to city to city. The gospel moves from Jerusalem to Antioch. It moves to Joppa out by the coast. And then Paul from Antioch begins taking the gospel through Asia Minor. And what we're going to be looking at for these next three weeks is what we has been known as Paul's second missionary journey. Now, if you were here for the Finding Atlanta series, which was like in November, we actually talked about the first half of Paul's second missionary journey. His Macedonian call is called to to Philippi, to the surrounding area. But what I want to look at this week, next week, and the week after is the second half of Paul's second missionary journey, where Paul is going to go from Philippi to Thessalonica to Athens and to Corinth. And we've got a lot to learn from God's work in each of these cities. But today, we're going to be looking at just one city, the city of Thessalonica. And Thessalonica teaches us four things, namely, teaches us a lot, but it teaches us the necessity of the gospel, the disruption of the gospel, the cost of the gospel, and the hope of the gospel. The necessity, the disruption, the cost, and the hope. So let's begin with the necessity of the gospel. You know, it's interesting, if you have your Bibles up, it's interesting how Paul begins here. He goes to the city, he goes to the synagogue, look at verse 2. Paul went in, as was his custom, for three days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. And then verse 3 is fascinating. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. He's explaining 
and proving that what has happened to Jesus was necessary for to happen to the Christ. So what Paul is doing is he's going to these Jews and Greeks who were there, these God-fearing Greeks, and he's making sense to them of the Old Testament. He's going to them and he's saying, you know, all these mysteries, all these things that needed to be unlocked in the Old Testament scriptures, let me tell you, Christ is the one who has unlocked them. And this is how he has unlocked them. He suffered and he was raised. He's unlocking the Old Testament for them. How do you make sense, as I just mentioned, of the promise that was given to the woman, of an offspring who would come, who would crush the head of the earth? But how do you make sense of that? He is saying Jesus is the answer to that. Jesus is the offspring who crushed the head of the serpent, who became sin on our behalf, who was bruised, but then who, who crushed the one who, uh, who was keeping us in this, this bondage, crushed the one who was deceiving the, the woman and leading the man into sin. How do you make sense of the suffering servant that you read about in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of the Old Testament that's also a king? Paul is saying it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. He unlocks this Old Testament mystery. You know, what about this passage that we see all throughout uh, the Old Testament, echoes of this passage, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, okay, God is gracious, God is forgiving, comma, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. How do you make sense of a verse like that? What is the answer to that verse? How is Jesus both merciful, or how is God, rather, both merciful, both forgiving, but at the same time does not clear the guilty, at the same time visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation? And what Paul is saying is, he is, as it says here, he is proving, he is explaining that Jesus is the answer. Jesus was the suffering servant. Jesus was punished. God visited our iniquity on Jesus so that he could be forgiving and merciful and gracious to us. Jesus was struck by the serpent in his death so that in his resurrection he could crush the serpent's head. Jesus unlocks the whole Old Testament. Jesus unlocks the whole Bible. You, you can't make sense of Jesus without the Old Testament, and you can't make any sense of the Old Testament without Jesus. Paul's saying Jesus is the key. Jesus is the answer. And he's showing these Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, and they believe. But I would pose this. What's so interesting about this, and we certainly see this in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians later, it's not just former Jews that are believing in Jesus. So many Greeks, so many people that were outside of Judaism are coming to faith in Christ. And, and I would pose that the, the reason for that is because Jesus unlocks everything. You know, it's a fascinating time right now in our day and age. There's so many questions of the age. And one is the tension between red and blue America that seems to be on display every single week. This is one of the tensions of our age, the questions of our age. There's so much passion. There's so much commitment to party. America feels so divided. And you know, it's interesting that Jesus, when he came, stepped into actually a very similar world. It was a divided and tense and passionate world. On the right, you had the Pharisees, the orderly religious people, the traditional folks. The perception of the Pharisees is that they gave privilege to the very few. 
On the left, you had the Romans, the pagans. There was sexual liberty among them. There was personal freedom among them. There was almost a worship of the government upon these people in the Roman world. And Jesus steps into this world, as divided as our world is now, and he offers resolution. There's resolution in Christ. You know, Jesus offers resolution between this tension of order and freedom. There's order in Christ, but there's also freedom. Christ calls us to be free by the power of the Spirit, not slaves, not in bondage to the order of the day, to the order of this world, but to be truly free, to be the people that God has designed us to be. You know, we, we have the similar tension today with, with women in culture and, and, and how, what is the how, what is the relationship between genders and male and female? This is a huge debate of our day. How do we make sense of this? Well, again, Jesus offers resolution for this. He stepped into a, a time in a world where women were depressed and devalued. And what do we see Jesus doing? He's always affirming women. He's always valuing women. Jesus play, uh, women play a huge part of Jesus' narrative. The first person that Jesus ever said that I am the Messiah to, you know who it was? It was a woman. The, the first person, the first people that saw Jesus in his res, as, a rector, as a resurrected man, the first people that saw him after the resurrection were women. He's always working for the justice of women. He's always valuing women. But at the same time, he's always affirming God's order of creation, the order of the church, the order of the home, and the distinctiveness between male and female. This is one of the reasons that I love Christianity. It, it gives you such a worldview that is not reckless, that is resolute, that is balanced. It, it's not reckless like people are today, shifting from one extreme to the other. No, true biblical Christianity is based in order and relationship. It's based in truth and grace. It's based in justice and mercy. It's based even locationally in east and west. Jesus unlocks the whole world. And in order to really understand that, and understand the way he unlocks the world, you understand that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. You see, Jesus was able to, in his time, step into a very confused and divided world and offer beautiful resolution. And occasionally, you saw people come to him, people from the right, like Nicodemus, who sought him out and who believed, you know what, you have the answer. I see truth in you. People from the Roman, from the, from the pagan left came to him and said, like the centurion, and said, I believe in you. I believe that you have the answers. Occasionally people came to him like this. But you know what happened most of the time? How most of the people in these groups responded to Jesus? They hated him. He was a threat to them. They, they were divided against him. In fact, the only time that the pagans and the Pharisees really came together, you know what it was? Was to kill Jesus. Caiaphas and Pilate was a strange pair. It was a pairing that should have never happened. But when Jesus came, when Jesus came with his resolution to the world, to being key to the world, people were threatened by it, which brings us to the second point, which is the disruption of the gospel. The disruption of the gospel. How do you know that you have met the real Jesus and you aren't just following a figment of your imagination? How do you know that you're really following Jesus and you're not just following some figment of your imagination? You know how you know? You know how you know you're believing in the real gospel? Is this, Jesus always disrupts. 
You know what they accused Paul of here in verse 6? It says, these men have turned the world upside down. And now they've come here also. The gospel turns the world upside down. Everything in Thessalonica was moving along just fine, right? The Jews had their customs. The Romans were worshiping Caesar. Everything was great until Jesus shows up. And all of a sudden, these people are believing there's a new king. There's a new order. Jesus is the ruler of the world. Jesus is the answer to everything. And everything changes. You know why most people reject Jesus? It's the same thing that's happening here. It's because they're not really willing to let Jesus be the Lord of their life. It's because they won't accept that Jesus is this new king. They won't let Jesus reign. You know, as long as Jesus just kind of stays in the corner and behaves himself and doesn't mess with your life too much, you're happy to keep him around. But you see, that Jesus is just a figment of your imagination. That's not the true Jesus. That's not the real Lord. Jesus is not your servant. Jesus is not your slave to make you feel some spiritual high on a Sunday. No, Jesus is the Lord of all, and the real Jesus disrupts. The real Jesus turns everything over. So, for example, I just want to say this. Your sexual ethic is the same as the world's. You know, if you can have sex with whoever you want to, just as long as it's consensual, just as long as it's safe, that's what the world's ethic is, then you aren't worshiping the real Jesus. You're worshiping some figment of your imagination that you've labeled Jesus. If you spend your money on whatever you want to, if you, if, if you aren't generous, if all of your income is going back to yourself, if you aren't giving to the Lord's work, if you aren't giving to the needy, then you, you're not really following the real Jesus. It's some figment of your imagination that just says, hey, life's all about you. This isn't really the Lord. Jesus disrupts. If there is no mission in your life, if you have no desire to tell other people about Jesus, then you don't know the real Jesus. If God's effect on you is only on the occasional Sunday, if this is just a private religion to you, this is not the real Jesus that you know. Because the real Jesus disrupts. He turns the world upside down. Do you know him? And are you really willing for him to come into your life and change you? Aldous Huxley, the famous atheist from two generations ago, he famously said one time, and I love this quote, he said, I had motives for not wanting a world with God. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness or atheism was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meeting the Christian meaning that they insisted of the world. So we didn't like the meaning of the world that Christ, that Christ gave. And then he says, there was one admirably simple method of, of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. How do we, with integrity, live however we want to? Well, we can't over here say that we believe in God. Aldous Huxley actually gets the point of First Thessalonians, of uh, Acts 17. He understood that the, the true Jesus, the true Jesus is not just something you can make up. No, if you're, if you're just going to make up a God, then don't have a God at all. No, the true Jesus always disrupts. Which brings us to the third point, which is the cost of the gospel. Well, obviously, in this story, the gospel comes at a great cost. I mean, these, these early Christians... 
were hated by the people of influence in their community. They made life incredibly difficult for him. In fact, this story is a, is a fascinating story. Paul later goes to a different city. After Thessalonica, he goes down to Berea, he starts a church there, and the, the Thessalonians, the people that hated him from Thessalonica, follow him to Berea to go persecute him there. They won't leave this guy alone. They were so enraged. They were so infuriated. They hated what Paul was saying. And this is just an example of Christian persecution that has been well documented throughout history. But I, I want to say that, that this kind of persecution is not something that is just a thing of the past. It still goes on today. And so actually at this time, I'm excited to introduce, to welcome one of our partners. Uh, over the next three weeks, you can come on Josh, over the next three weeks we're going to be introducing you as a church to different ministry partners that we have with people that are serving in all different parts of the world. And one of them is Josh Youssef, who leads an amazing ministry called Help the Persecuted. And I'm going to let Josh tell you about that ministry, but let's just welcome uh, Josh forward as he comes today. So Josh, um, it's great to see you, man. I'm glad you're here. There you go. Um, yeah, as, we, as we're talking about this passage and the cost of the gospel um, that these Thessalonians um, had to endure. I, I couldn't think of a better guy uh, to talk to about um, that. Before we get to what your ministry does, though, give us just a little bit of context with globally what's going on in the church, or at least at some parts of the world where people don't enjoy the same kind of religious liberty that we enjoy here in Atlanta. Well, did, there was some news that came out a couple weeks ago that said that um, 245 million Christians face what's called extreme persecution on a regular basis. And that number has gone up about 15% just in the last uh, 12 to 24 months. So more Christians than there are Christians in the United States are facing extreme persecution all the time. And, and how, depending on how you define the church globally, <clears throat> that could be anywhere from 10 to 20% of the global church. Right, yeah. So what is HTP, Help the Persecuted? How do you help the persecuted? What, how, do you, how are you engaging with this? So I've been working in and around the Middle East, North Africa region for the last 17 years. And a, a man by the name of Hannah Shaheen, who was a, a great missionary to the region, once told me that 90% of Muslims who come to faith in Jesus Christ return back to Islam. And that statistic always bothered me. I, I took it as my life mission to figure out why they return to Islam. And there are several factors. One is that uh, the familial structure is so strong and the political structure is so strong within Islam that it's hard for them to, to get out of um, their situation. Uh, the other thing is, is it's, a, it's a problem of resources. Oftentimes it's a, re a resource problem both financially as well as resources of workers in the field, people who are willing to minister to these people, disciple these people, and to help plant churches. And so what we have done sort of missiologically, we, we, our plan is to help and, and our, we aim to get MBBs, what we call Muslim background believers, out of situations that are, um, when we say rescue, we're not saying rescue them back to, like, to the U.S. or to Canada or Australia. Some ministries do that. But we want to rescue them out of a situation that's more localized and get them into a situation where they are no longer uh, being threatened. So a lot of times we move people from Amman to Cairo or Cairo to Casablanca or Casablanca to Amman. What we don't understand is that in the Middle East, on your ID card, your driver's license, your religion is on that card. 
you cannot get out of your caste in the Middle East, North Africa. Now, when you take someone from a smaller village to a bigger town, you can then help them to blend into the community a little bit better. So we now have MBB, Muslim background believer communities, in Cairo and in Amman. A lot of times they uh, come out of one country, go into the other, we find them a job. They then get placed into an MBB worship community. They marry other MBBs. So now we're seeing first and second generation Muslim background believers for the first time since the seventh century. That's amazing. Well, you know, it was interesting. I saw Lacey over here. I was, I was having a conversation with one of our members about moral ecology um, or, you know, just what does it take to grow in Christ? Um, you, you need, you know, when, when you become a Christian in the United States, you're welcomed into a church, you're baptized, you're celebrated. It's, it's an ecology of faith. You're, you're, you're able to grow in that relationship here. And how foreign that is, mm. is, you know, you're coming to a faith in Christ in a place where it's not only not celebrated, but actually you're, you're hated. Everybody that you love turns their back on you. Um, and so you're putting people in communities where they have a chance to grow in the Lord. I mean, is that basically? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the, there's no greater uh, display of the disruption of the gospel than in this Middle East, North Africa region and Pakistan. Uh, I would go into Central Asia as well. But, uh, it disrupts everything. It disrupts everything. I'll tell you some stories. Um, we, we had helped a young lady. She was from a prominent Jordanian family, a very prominent Muslim tribe in Jordan. Now, those are the kinds of people you have to get them out of the country. Um, if you're a, kind of a, an everyday citizen, we might be able to move you into a different village from where you were raised. Um, but she had to leave Jordan. Um, she had had a vision of Jesus. And um, one of our team members had discipled her. And uh, they said, she can't stay. She's got to go. So we flew her out to Cairo. She joined an MBB community in Cairo. And she abandoned her family. She had to leave her family, her family who ultimately wanted to kill her. And, and that's, that's difficult, I think, for us to understand that, that probably the greatest form of persecution that exists among those 245 million people that I mentioned is family-on-family family violence. And so she goes to Cairo, and I happened to be in Cairo with our team. I had taken my board with me, and I, I brought some security with me as well for them. And so we were, we were in this room with this young lady, and she said, I haven't spoken to my mother in months. Can I use your phone to call my mother so she can see your uh, area code number and not think yeah. I'm in Egypt? And so I was like, uh, I asked one of the security guys, I was like, I'm going to borrow your phone in case somebody tracks it. Yeah. <laughs> I want them to find you, not me. So, um, so he hands way, over way his... Way to be bold for the gospel. <laughs> Listen, there, you know. yeah. There's still work for me to do, yeah. Jason. Uh, so he hands me his phone, and she goes into the other room, and I could hear her in English and in Arabic saying, uh, no, Mom, I love you. I love you, Mom. I love you. I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry, and her mother was obviously screaming insults at her and yelling at her and telling her that she was as good as dead. Uh, she came out of the room and she handed the phone to our security officer and she said, because of Jesus, I have lost my mother. Perfect English. Because of Jesus, I have lost my mother. But if I had to do it all over again, I would. This really hardened security guy, I'm talking like Blackwater type security guy, <clears throat> it broke him. The whole ride home to the airport, he kept saying, Josh, 
What causes a mother to do that to their daughter? What causes a mother to do that to their daughter? And I told him, I said, Jesus said that he would cause enmity between mother and daughter, father and son. And it is because of her great love for Jesus, that's why she's willing to give that up. And um, so we see that a lot. We see that a lot. Zane Pratt, who I, uh, is going to be here preaching in two weeks, uh, he's, he's maybe the best missiologist I know. He spent years serving in the Middle East, and he, uh, he's fascinating. Some of y'all heard him last year. He said to me one time, he does not know a Muslim that has, um, not com- that has come to faith in Christ, that has come to faith in Christ without receiving some sort of vision. But at the same time, he says he doesn't know anyone that's come to faith in Christ only by receiving a vision. Is that a pattern that you, is that something that you see in your work in the Middle East? And just kind of help us understand some of the ways that God is at work. So um, my cousin is a pastor in the largest evangelical church in the Middle East in Cairo, Egypt, Qasr al-Dabar. In the early 80s, a man, uh, a pastor there by the name of Manis Abdenour, he was so burdened to reach the Muslims around him him in Cairo and really the greater Middle East, but he was um, always frustrated by the fact that the Egyptian government said, you cannot evangelize outside the walls of your church. This has been law for 1,400 years. Um, so his church began to pray. He said, let's gather together, let's pray regularly that the Lord would do the impossible, that he would do what we cannot do, right. which is to visit people in visions and dreams. And so every week they would pray the same prayer. Lord, visit Muslims in their dreams and visit Muslims in their dreams. And what we've seen over the last 30 to 40 years is that coming to fruition, that prayer being answered, which is that thousands, tens of thousands, I would say hundreds of thousands of Muslims having these visions and dreams of Jesus in some form or another. And then that leading them either to the internet where they go and discover Christian discipleship online or leading them to an above ground church where very secretly they have to, they get discipled or to an underground church. Uh, And these communities end up growing and multiplying throughout the Middle East, North Africa as a result of that. That's awesome. How can we pray for you guys? How can we get, how can we engage? How can we be praying, come alongside, help the person? um, We'll add someone in Syria this year. So we have uh, Turkey, Iraq, Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, Morocco, and Algeria. We'll add Syria probably by the end of April. And then uh, Pakistan will be later this year. And then we've taken over another uh, organization in uh, Hong Kong, which will be our beachhead for China. Mm-hmm. So we just need prayer for the right people and the right, uh, right vision for those countries. Definitely. definitely. And then just ways we can engage, I guess, through your webpage or how do we, if we want to learn more. Yeah, so htp.org, helpthepersecuted.org. Uh, is our website, and um, we are working on kind of a, a program in Amman where we would have people come and stay longer term uh, to serve as, as uh, s- to serve the team, um, and that would be not necessarily a short-term thing, but yeah. we're starting to see a lot of these universities and colleges that offer Arabic as a, as a language program. A lot of Christians are coming out of those programs in the West and want to go and serve in the Middle East, and so some very interesting things happening there. And so maybe some of you guys, that uh, you could go and support the church globally in Amman. I'd love for you to connect with Josh. He'll be in the lounge um, afterward. But let me just, I just want to, you know, just pause. Let's pray for this ministry. Pray for our brothers and sisters um, in a very different setting than we're in.
Father, I just thank you so much for Josh, uh, just the amazing work that you're doing through him and through Healthy Persecuted. Um, I pray, Father, you use this organization um, for the sake of the gospel, that the hope of Christ, the hope of knowing you in Christ may be known, may be a reality globally, that the whole world would have access to you in Christ, in the gospel, Lord, that um, that there would be... Um, that there would be real access, a real place of, of disciple-making and discipleship, real healthy churches that, uh, that people, as they are being cut off, as they're facing the, the, uh, the cost of the gospel uh, for trusting in Christ, Lord, that you would just continue to provide other believers that can encourage their faith, that can stir their faith, um, and continue to use Josh uh, for this such an important work. Lord. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would just even stir in our church um, a desire to pray, a desire to support, uh, a desire to get behind what you're doing um, outside of the United States. And uh, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have one more point, and I'm just going to ask Josh if he'll just sit up here with me. Um, and then I'm going to ask him to pray for uh, our church. But the last point, we've talked about the necessity of the gospel, the disruption of the gospel, the cost of the gospel. But last, I want to talk about the hope of the gospel. This church, Thessalonica, was formed under great persecution. I mean, you read this story, and it's amazing that this thing ever got off the ground. You know, how in this place where, where literally Paul was being chased around in other neighboring cities, where people were being thrown out, where people were being brought before the authorities of the city, where people were having to pay fines. I mean, immediately, they had just heard the gospel, and immediately they were facing this incredible duress. How did the church get off the ground here? Well, it did. It did. The power of Christ was real. As Josh shared with the woman, they, they experienced Jesus, and it was worth it. And it was worth it. And, and this church, it's amazing. Uh, just, just Most scholars believe just like a year later, Paul writes the letter with, that we know as 1 Thessalonians, which is a letter to this little church that somehow got off the ground despite great persecution. And here's what he said. Here's how he starts the letter. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because the gospel came to you not only in word, we didn't just preach it to you, but also in power, it changed you. And in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, you really believed. You know what kind of men we proved to be among, uh, among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us. You followed, it's, this is kind of the work that, that, Paul, that uh, Josh is talking about. I almost called you Paul, the apostle. That Josh is talking about here. He's, he's saying, look, there was somebody that was modeling this to you. There was somebody that was encouraging your faith. You imitated it. And now, even through much affliction, you received the word with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all believers of Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't even have to say anything. For they say themselves, a report concerning the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And I just want to close with this. Look, this is, in so many ways, we, we had a small missions emphasis last year, but this is kind of our our first cut at this, our first, we're, we're trying to engage and to be a church that's engaged globally. And, and my prayer for Christ's covenant would be that one day somebody could write a letter about us like this and say, look, we've heard about your faith. We've heard about your faith. 
We've heard that you guys really believe, not just in word, but in power, that the Spirit came upon you. That we could be a church that not only encourages other churches in Atlanta, but literally is, is encouraging churches all over the world. You know, there's churches like this. You, you get on the mission field, and there's churches that people, you get out there and say, well, we know about this church. They're sending people like crazy. We know about this church. They got folks in Oman. They got folks here. They got folks there. God is at work in this church. Oh, my prayer for Christ's covenant. But that we would be this kind of a church. That, that we have such deep and rich faith that it moves people, that it changes people, that people realize those people know God. Those people aren't just like happy little American Christians. That, that, that our faith will be undeniable. That our faith will be undeniable. You go to the Middle East, you go, you go visit some of these folks that Josh, you don't, you don't think to yourself, oh, that's just cultural Christianity. No. You're, they're like, you're like, something has happened to them. Something has moved them. Something has changed them. They must know God. And look, I, I'm grateful that we live in a place with a lot of religious liberty, with a lot of religious freedom. Praise God for that. That is a gift of grace that we should not take for granted. But I pray that in this setting, in this secularizing city, that we would be a people that are known as a people who know God and who love God and who are moved by God and who are, who are changed by God, who are disrupted by the power of the gospel. May that be true of us. And I pray that these next three weeks as we study these three cities, that God would move in us as he moved in them. And so, Josh, as we close today, would you return the prayer? Pray for us. Pray for Christ's covenant as we close. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I, we love you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to not just say that we love you, but to live it. And Lord, we pray for a world that uh, many of whom have never heard the gospel. We pray for those who do not uh, know you. We pray, Lord, that you would use whatever means possible to reach them. We pray for those, Lord, who are suffering under great weight today. Lord, would you help them to persevere? Lord, would that perseverance be an encouragement to us in growing our own faith and love for you? As Jason said, Lord, we do thank you that we live here in America. We ask that we would not take it for granted, that we would not abuse it in some way or misuse it, that freedom. But Lord, we also pray against arrogance. We pray for a humility to fall upon your church here in the West and particularly the United States. I thank you for Christ's covenant, Buckhead. Lord, I thank you that this church has been a little um, oasis for my family. I thank you for the leadership of this church. I pray, Lord, for this vision to fall on them, uh, to reach not only Jerusalem and Judea, but the, to the ends of the, the earth, Lord. Give them that passion, that vision, that corporate uh, vision. I thank you for Jason, Lord. I pray that you would strengthen him in the innermost and that, Lord, you would remind him that you care more about the minister than the ministry. Thank you for his service to this church. I pray, Lord, that you would grow this congregation, strengthen her. We love you, Jesus. And it's in that name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.